This is Ivadi and X, and this is The Candid Frame. Over the years, we've talked to every level of professional photographer. We've had conversations with veterans as well as people just beginning their career. So if you've listened to even a few of the episodes, you may have realized that there is no singular path to being or having a successful career. But but that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of wisdom to be had about some of the choices we have to make to try and earn a living from making pictures. Don Gianetti, who has been in the industry for over three decades, brings a lot of that to the table. As well as being a successful commercial photographer, he's a writer and an instructor who was recognized by PDN in 2011 as one of the country's best workshop instructors. So whether you're thinking about making the leap or already out there making a go of it, I think you'll find this conversation both entertaining and enlightening. Well, Don, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. When thinking about what to to ask you as my first question, I was kind of, because you're very very diverse. You cover a lot of ground. And uh, a student asked me, after looking at some of their work, they asked me the question, do you think I have any talent? And that gave rise to my first question to you. And you've been in the industry for over 30 years. And in your experience, when it comes to a professional photographer, be it a commercial photographer or, or something along those lines, how much is talent played a role in the photographers you know being successful? Or do you think there's another quality that's even more important than having innate talent? You know, when I first started out, I thought talent was the, was the calling card. That was what we all had to have, was this sort of ethereal quality we call talent. Uh, the longer I've been in the business, the more I've seen that while a modicum of talent is, of course, needed, I think the most important thing is perseverance, self-motivated, uh, the ability to get up every day and keep going in the face of lots of other challenges that this industry offers and, and has always offered is probably the most important thing. I have seen, and I'm sure you have seen, some extremely talented people who had been business-wise total failures. And we've seen people who, well, for lack of better term, let's just say not so talented, but end up with fantastic careers. They do have some talent, obviously, but it's it's the ability to get the job done and move forward that has always propelled them. And we can think of big names in the industry, and we won't use those names, but some names that were huge because of their talent 20 years ago and today are doing Instagram photos to try to get noticed. (laughs) That talent part is a difficult uh, question to answer, but no, I don't think it's the most important. I think it is important to have some talent, but not the most important uh, part of what we do. Your answer is interesting because you, you, you say perseverance. Being able to perse- persevere once, is it one or a multiple of things? It's a multiple of things. Um, you know, you, you have to wake up in the morning and feel that your work is good enough. I mean, that's one thing that I impress upon young people when they they show me their work. They go, well, and I'm not sure if this is very good. Well, if you're not sure it's very good, here's a thought. Don't show it to me. Show me the stuff you really think is good. 
Um, so you've got to have that. And you also have to, to get up and, and realize that of every 10 calls you make that day, uh, every 10 portfolio showings you make in a week, uh, you may get a response on one. Um, I think the number is one out of 10 sort of, you know, so there's a, uh, a hazy number, one out of 10 uh, calls results in, in something. What I see is that folks get get uh, they get out of bed in the morning and they find a hundred diversions to keep them from making those calls. And at the end of the week, they haven't made ten calls, uh, so they haven't never gotten to their one point. So the perseverance is getting up and doing all the really crappy nine calls you got to do to get to the one winner. That's where people break down. That's where it that's where it, it loses its uh, its edge. I think. When did you feel like in your own career that you were able to move away from from obsessing over talent to the point you were feeling like my work is good enough that I am deserving enough to go out there and solicit work to get clients to make a living at it? Because a lot of people want to become professional photographers and make it to the point where they feel their work is good enough. But that doesn't automatically translate in them going out there and, and like you said, making those cold calls or, or trying to find clients. Was there... Uh, a particular moment or a series of events in your own life that you felt like you felt like I can or I need to do this? There's there's two answers to that. The first answer is uh, when I feel that way, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> we uh, we photographers tend to do that. Um, but the other the other one more on a more serious note. Yes, there was. It was a kind of a serious a series of events. One of the, my mantras that I talk to photographers about all the time is is I. I, I I say, first, be a photographer. You can't just jump out of bed one morning and say, well, now I'm going to start making money at it. You have to be a photographer. I cannot tell you how many model composites and headshots and freebies I did for this agency and that agency. And then one day I looked around and people were paying me. And I realized that they were paying me because of the work I was producing. And that was a, uh, the first step to me thinking, gee, I could really make a living at this. Uh, the second uh, step was after meeting with uh, my first 25 different art directors at different ad agencies and having them pretty much, you know, escort me back to the door. Uh, I met a guy uh, from L.A. who loved my work and started giving me a lot of work. So I wasn't working in Phoenix at all. I was working in Los Angeles. That was a, a moment when I realized you can't please everybody. You can't. You can't be, you, you can't show your book to everybody and get a job. Some people are going to like your work. Some people are going to hate it. Most people are going to be indifferent to it. That was uh, that, that moment when I started working pretty good paying jobs, pretty uh, influential type jobs, you know, double, pay, double page ads, uh, national magazines. That's when I kind of thought, okay, I've, I've sort of made it. And then you wake up and you, you have five more no's and you think, oh, I guess I didn't. <laughs> so how did this guy in L.A. find out about your work? Because I'm assuming this is before the Internet and web pages yep. and, and emails and all that. So how did this guy, you're in, you're in Arizona and this guy in L.A. find out about you? Well, I learned a long time ago that you have to market to the people you want to shoot for. And so what I had done was I'd taken out a, a workbook ad. Uh, very expensive, I think, gosh, I want to say 19, God, I want to say 1980, 79. Um, I'd taken out a workbook ad and um, they, gave, they gave you then tear sheets from the ad. You got uh, 2,500 copies of your page. And so I had very carefully researched through um, 
the magazine magazines like print art director communication arts I'd track down those art directors that I really wanted to work for and started pointedly sending them my uh, my marketing materials. Yes, this was pre-internet for sure. Okay. So so now we have the internet and you have you don't have to pay those, you know, those high fees to get into workbook. You can like create $8, a web thousand dollars yeah, in nineteen eighty. Oh my god. Something. Yeah. So you don't have to lay out that sort of expensive to get your word out there. You can create a website, you can get you can send a, a e blast, you can do all these things. Do you think that necessarily is making things easier for people out there to to get their work out there? Or do you think that they're posing even more hurdles than than the monetary one uh, presented several years back? You know, the, every sword has two edges on it. The side of the sword that says, uh, well, it's really been easy. I mean, it's been, you know, you can, the Internet has lowered the bar, so to speak, on on getting to see people. You can get email lists. You can go through um, agency access and get, you know, thousands of people to send your email to. That's really great. It's lowered the price. The unfortunate thing is that everybody has access to it. And so now where you could, when you were sending out direct mail pieces, you must, you might have been one of 20 pieces coming in that day. Uh, now your email is one of hundreds, in some cases, hundreds of emails that come in that day. And um, an art director at Wired Magazine, for instance, uh, who gets hundreds of uh, emails a day from photographers of all stripes, how does he know how good or bad they are? He, he has no time. He could, it would take him all day just to look at the emails. And so the one side of the sword is it's easier. The other side is it is easier for everyone. And um, since we are in an industry that has no gatekeeper, you are a photographer if you say you are. And you create a business card and you've got a camera. I guess you can say you're a photographer. The flood is deeper. Yeah. Much deeper. Well, well, for you, what what made you decide to become a photographer? Because then and now, there are easier ways to make a living. And, and so what was it about photography that lured you to the point that you felt like, despite the obvious challenges that, that, that you faced during the time, that you felt like, God, I have, to, I have to do this? Or was it that you felt like you didn't think you could do anything else but this? Partly both of those. I'll tell you, um, when I'm asked these days, they say, well, why are you a photographer? The, the only answer I can give is because I have to be. I, I mean, whether I get paid money for it or not, I make still images. My earliest memories were are waiting for the Saturday Evening Post and Look magazine to come in on uh, Wednesday afternoons at my home. I think I was probably five or six years old, and I would just sit and look at the pictures. I had no idea of photography. I didn't know anything about cameras. My dad had a camera, but that was, you know, I was only six years old, but I was just fascinated by the pictures and um that stuck with me forever and when my uh i was about 14 years old my dad gave me his brownie and i thought wow i can go take pictures so i went out and took a roll of film with the brownie and came back and of course did not meet my expectations told dad yeah this isn't gonna work this is a terrible camera so i uh i got his voigtlander and started going in and making photographs when i was on vacation once in Carmel, walked into a gallery, was 15 years old, and um, saw pictures there by um, Weston 
Caponegro, Cunningham, Adams, and um, oh, Paul Strand. Um, it was everything they could do, my family, to get me out of the gallery. I just wanted to stand there and look at those photographs. And that's when I knew I had to do that. I had no idea mm. <laughs> how to do that because my little uh, Voigtlander was, uh, you know, I was making prints with my dad, but my prints didn't look like that. And I knew I had to, to learn how to do that. Um, still photography is all about time and you know, where other artists have the ability to refine. I'm also a composer, and it's very easy to erase a note and put a different note in there. Uh, with photograph, it's everything that goes into art, composition, lighting, tone, texture, all of that. And then it's that magical moment because uh, I'm, you know, old, you know, longtime film shooter. Uh, so I use the metaphor of a contact sheet. You can put a contact sheet down and there's 35. Yeah, they're Okay. And then there's one at just that one. And you go, my God, that one works. Why? Because of time, everything else was equal. It was just the time, the moment you took it. And that moment never comes back. Yeah. It's amazing that, that the photographers tend to think I, there's a, there's a tendency for perfectionism amongst many artists, but I think photographers seem to be particularly subject to it because I, I never think of a, of a musician sitting there practicing something and, berating themselves because they didn't hit that note the, exactly the right way when they were playing that song. Because it's an almost inevitable that, that as you're playing, you're going to make some mistakes, but you kind of just see it through. And you know, with photographers, they will look at their mistakes and they will think that that's representative of their, of their talent or who they are as a, as a photographer. Do, do you feel like, have you seen that yourself? Absolutely. Um, it's so true. Uh, one of my uh, all-time heroes in the entire world um, is John Coltrane. And um, he was an absolute master at his music, his, at his, ab, his instrument. But I have every live recording he ever did, and he, he missed some notes here and there. And of course, we take, uh, take it over to Miles Davis. Miles Davis was not the world's most technically proficient trumpet player. I mean, not by a mile was this guy a great, quote, trumpet player. He was just an amazing musician. And when Miles would hit a wrong note, it was actually the right wrong note to hit. Mm. <laughs> so when you, when you sit and, and realize that in imperfection, there is a, uh, a synergy or a harmony in the imperfection, that's, that's okay. I've never been a camera junkie as far as like edge-to-edge -edge sharpness and how many how many pixels there is. And, you know, uh, I've always tried to do the best I can, but I'd rather make a photograph that has more emotion to it than be some sort of technically perfect photograph. I won't mention a name. Uh, I took a workshop from this guy. He's famous in the black and white world, terrible photographer, absolutely amazing printer. The guy mm. could print a black and white negative of like a wet stone and you would look at it and feel like if you touched it, your fingers would get wet. It was the most beautiful print of the most boring photograph. <laughs> so he was technically astute, but pictures didn't move anyone. And I, I, would, I would prefer to be on the other side. I'd rather move somebody with my picture and have it be, you know, not technically perfect. Yeah, and I've met photographers who are not great technicians, but they have a wonderful sensibility and eye, and they're able yes. to make images, even though if, they, if you ask them to explain 
techniques in Photoshop and stuff, they go, I don't know anything about that. I leave it to somebody else to do that for me. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, so it's like every extreme imaginable. And I think that this adherence that, that photographers have to be inherently perfect throughout the entire workflow is, I think, debilitating for, for a lot of people. Oh, I think it, I think it hurts them in their creativity um, as well, because they will sacrifice the creative for the technical. And I would never sacrifice the creative for the technical. So how do you contend with that? Because you teach workshops, you've been, you, you've been acknowledged for being one of the, you know, one of the best instructors in, in, in photography uh, by PDN. And people are walking in, in the door with those concepts in their head, being preoccupied with talent, thinking that somehow that they have to achieve perfection or some sort of defined by somebody else in order to be able to lay claim to the title of being able to say, I'm a photographer. They seem to be waiting for permission from someone else. So mm-hmm. when people walk into the door with that and you're, you're there to, to teach them and encourage them, how do you combat all of that baggage that people walk through the door with? Wow. That's a, that's a tough one. One of the things I do when, when they do come in and one of the, of the when I, do a workshop, the first thing I tell them is, I cannot teach you how to be a great photographer. Anyone who says they can is lying to you. Being a great photographer is something that comes with time. Or, and I just saw the, the work of a 17-year-old girl on, inter, on, the, on, uh, on the internet, uh, fantastic, talented young lady, just way off the charts with her talent. Great, fantastic, but but you have to bring that to the table. I can show you how to use a speed light or how to set exposures and, and how to blend ambient in ways that you'll understand that. But then what you do with that, that knowledge is going to be far different than the person next to you. Now, when I, when I did workshops, um, I haven't done any recently. I'm getting ready to, to sign up for some more. But when I did them, I always showed up at the workshop with a rebel. Had you heard that? Oh, no, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, That's great. I showed up with a Rebel. Um, that was my camera at the workshop. Now, I don't, I don't do a lot of shooting at the workshop, just some demoing. They do all the shooting. But uh, I, first thing I wanted them to see is, oh, it sure doesn't have anything to do with a camera. My first creative live that I did, I did with a Rebel. <laughs> mm. And, uh, well, you should have heard the chat room. What? It's like, my feeling is, the image that I'm going to make is going to be my expression through the camera that I have in my hand. And so that's the best that, that, uh, that I can hope for is to bring that emotional thing through it, not to sit here and, and blow it up and count how many pixels are in the, uh, in the eyeball or something like that. That stuff has never interested me. So when the, when the person comes in and they want to get technical, first thing I try to explain to them, and sometimes you get through and sometimes you don't, is that making a photograph that has emotion, that has uh, the ability to move somebody, whether to an emotion or to an action, is far more important than the details. And then, of course, I show them some examples of photographers. Uh, one of my favorite is to... Uh, show them examples of Matt Mahurin's work. Are you familiar with Matt's no, no, work? No. Matt Mahurin, um, one of uh, the most creative guys. He's uh, also a film director. Um, but, you know, he shot every, he shot lots and lots of art on a 
broken Holga. So sharpness, as you can imagine, was not part of that uh, of that world. And yet the images are stunning and just, you know, just uh, emotionally a roller coaster to see. There are several photographers that have come up, uh, I guess, in this generation that have learned by using YouTube and using the Internet as, as, a, as a resource. And photographers like Brooke Shaden and Joyelle have in a very short time, usually with only two or three years, have created these incredible bodies of work mm-hmm. that that have drawn a lot of attention because they invested a lot of themselves into the work. Yes, yeah. they had learned stuff about lighting, about Photoshop, about lens choice, all those things, which a lot of other people have done. But what made these people, these young people sort of rise to the fore was the fact that they they tapped into something that was unique about themselves and used that to create the photographs. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you, you see that uh, with, with, with some young photographers and sometimes you don't. And when I see it, it's something that's really, really exciting. But I think part of it is we've touched on it that there's a level of insecurity of putting yourself out there to that to that to that level. I think the, both of the photographers that you mentioned, um, I'm, I'm not that familiar with Joey L, but Brooke uh, Shaden is someone that I, I very much enjoyed her um, creative live thing. But I know a little bit about Joey. Both of those people were photographers first before they became commercial photographers. Uh, from what I know of Brooke Shaden, she just made photographs all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, the business came to her. The same with Joey L when he was, uh, you know, a youngster uh, shooting his friends who had bands. It was all about, hey, let's get together and make a cool photograph. It wasn't, hey, I need something for my portfolio so I can go do the pictures for a vampire movie. It was always just about the pure joy of making that photograph. And what I see so often uh, in in photographers starting out, especially on the internet, you know, the, the Facebook and stuff is they made 20 photographs and now they want to open a studio and get out there and make the big box. And they don't even really have yet an idea of what it is they want to do. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's the, that's the trap. That's, you either make photographs for yourself or you make them for a portfolio. And if you're doing the latter, you're creating a, full, a portfolio based on what you assume someone else wants. Mm-hmm. And so you end up making a bunch of compromises, particularly if you're making work where you don't see a market for it. And that oh. stuff gets relegated to the, to the drawer or that folder on your, on your desktop because you don't feel like, well, I don't know how I'm going to make any money from this. And that's the work that usually is, is the most exciting. Well, I, I just had a, a, a call with a photographer, um, little consulting call, and he was like, well, I'm not making any money. And I'm looking at his pictures, and it's all model mayhem, half-naked girls. And my question to him was, where do you see this work other than model mayhem? I mean, can you show me a magazine other, out there? I mean, it's not raunchy enough to be in a, quote, men's magazine, and it's too pinuppy to be in you know fat it's not fashion so where is this work you know i i don't know that's the and that's the problem there's no market for it other than the market that exists on model mayhem um 
the the pictures with the butterflies painted on the eyeballs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great for model mayhem, and it's great for doing it for fun. Boy, I don't have any problem with people doing photography for fun. None. If they want to get together on a Saturday afternoon and make photographs, oh man, I love that. That's such a cool thing to do. But it's there's no market there. There's no business to be had by that. Um, and that's a little off-putting to them because they think that every photograph they make could be used somewhere, uh, that somebody's making money off of it. And the fact is, that's not true. Yeah. Why do you think that, that some photographers who are working uh, commercially will will do work, but it's not work that they're excited about? And And sometimes if you really press them, they'll admit that they may not have given their all to that, that work and that they have a more of an affinity for something else, which they will invest all their energy and all their time in and all their effort in. What's, what's your perspective when you hear that? Um, one of my pet peeves that I just simply never want to hear anybody say is, well, they didn't pay me enough to, and you've heard that, right? Yeah. They didn't pay. Well, my, my argument is, yeah, they paid you exactly what you said you'd do it for. So if you said you'd do it for $200 and it was a $1,000 job, that's your problem, not their problem. Your job is to do 100% at every single photograph you do for anybody for money, period. Whether it's $100 or $10,000, you accepted the job. And you take that job and treat it like it treat every job you do like it's a $10,000 photograph. Otherwise, down the road, it will come back and bite you right in the back end. And you will find yourself not working um, because somebody else is doing that. Every day a photographer doesn't market, he has to realize somebody else is that day marketing. You don't get to, as a commercial photographer, you don't get to make the great photographs you think you should be making every day. Eight out of 10, seven out of 10 photographs that you make are for a catalog or for this or for that. We don't put that in our portfolios these days. We used to, but we don't now. Now it's all creative. And so a lot of the stuff you do doesn't end up in your portfolio. It doesn't end up anywhere for anyone to see. That frees you up to do the jobs that really are cool. We have to have cash flow. And so if cash flow is created by doing, um, my, one, of my, one of my favorite clients uh, was a company in San Diego that would send me garage door openers, uh, chains and all that stuff. Once a month, I'd get a shipment at the studio. I made 4,500 bucks a month for two days in the studio shooting garage door openers every month. Mm. There was never a garage door opener in my portfolio. <laughs> it's just, you know, we didn't show that work. But that work gave me the ability to test, to travel and do some, some personal work. And I'd rather do that making photographs of garage door openers or bar S meets or anything else than have a job job. Uh, where I couldn't get, I couldn't take Tuesday off if I wanted to. So what I'm hearing you saying is that you may work as a generalist, but you market yourself as something else, as a creative. Yes. yes. My th- the third book I did for Amherst was based uh, on that. 
And uh, it was for photographers who were in pretty much any city other than San Francisco, Chicago, New York, uh, those those three cities. I mean, if you're in Omaha and your specialty is editorial portraiture, welcome to Walmart. Can I help you find anything? It's just not enough work. You yeah. better also be able to do a little food and a little jewelry and whatever. It's called cash flow. Keep those doors open so that once a week or even twice a month, you're able to go and do those editorial portraits and and market yourself to uh, Time Magazine or Forbes or Business 2.0 to try to break into that market outside of your town. But in your town, you better be ready to to do a little bit of everything. Okay. Um, otherwise, it's painful. Well, you're a designer, so you've helped design websites. Yes. And, and so, so how do you contend with that with a photographer who wants to do just what you said, and yet he feels like, well, I need to be able to show on my website that I'm able to shoot all these things. But, you know, if you put too much up there, people really don't know what makes you unique or special. Yes, absolutely. So how, do you, how, so how do you balance those two things out when, when you're working with a photographer to put together a website for them? I have a I have a three of the rule of three pick three genres, your main genre and two others. So uh, as a as a as a generalist, so to speak, uh, that doesn't mean you put everything up there. Um, so you know it might be people, travel, and food, or fashion, beauty, and portrait. Uh, but just three. And it, what you, once you go past three, you're now confusing your market. Uh, and when you go past five, you look, look silly and desperate. You know, oh, I can do everything. I can do airplanes. I can do lawnmowers. I can do. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. I'm sorry. Um, no one can do all that well. So I have the three rule. Pick the three. Uh, try to make them, you know, uh, travel, architecture, food. That would work. Um, airplanes, babies, and glamour. No, that's silly. Yeah. So, you know, work within that. The rest of it just comes from that word of mouth and, and uh, getting out there and, and trying to find uh, those clients who will um, let you expand a little bit. But that, that's my rule is three. If they want to do more than three, um, I build most of my websites these days in WordPress. I guess they can add whatever they want. But when I consult with them, uh, no more than three. So when you – I also – by the way, prefer that photographers have an old-fashioned approach to their portfolios. And you're seeing it more and more online. I've been doing it for 10 years, and that is having a category called portfolio. Then you could have people, places, and things. But portfolio is just like that old book we used to carry around that had 30 sheets in it. We had to show what we did in 30 pictures. And um, the, I, I recommend uh, photographers do that. And that's probably one of the hardest things to do is edit, you know, your, your body of work to, to 30. Mm-hmm. So, so what are some of the tricks that you've used when you're editing your own work to be able to make a really tight representative 30 selects for, for your portfolio? Cause that's something that photographers are, are, are rarely if ever taught and people do it a variety of different ways with varying levels of success. So what, what ends up working for you? Well, you said that so perfectly. Varying levels of success and everybody tries something. Um, well, I'm brutal with my editing. And I only show the pictures that I really like. 
The way I do that, if you could see my office right now, the way I do that is I have a cork board behind my computer. And by the way, I'm using my hands to show you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I have a cork board. And so when I make pictures that I like, I put them on that cork board. So I live with them for a while. And then slowly, you know, some will come off. The ones that are there for a while, okay, that means something to me. So I'll put it in. But then I have to start justifying which one am I going to take out to put this one in. And so it becomes kind of brutal. I work with um, a couple of people that, whose um, opinions I really appreciate. I don't think a photographer, especially one starting out, and especially one who's been in business for 20 years, both of them fall prey to trying to do it themselves. Um, someone who's just starting out, get someone to help you. Get someone who can see past your story because we take a picture and that picture has a lot of baggage with it. And so you look at it and you go, wow, that picture turned out pretty cool. The model was late. The makeup artist was, you know, couldn't find the set. It started to rain. We had to move it inside. Um, everything went wrong, but still I got this picture. So you're, you're right. For everything that went wrong, you did a pretty good job. For the viewer, doesn't care what went wrong. Does the picture stand up on its own without the story? Yeah. And if the answer is no, it comes out. And so we bring our own stories to it. So if you ask me, the hardest thing for me is letting go of the story uh, of the image and just looking purely at the image. Yeah. And my biggest piece of advice when people are soliciting other people's comments is mm-hmm. learn to shut up and listen. Do not be defensive. Don't try to explain why this image should be included or why it works. Because when they submit a portfolio, they're not going to have the benefit of being able to speak up and defend uh, a picture choice or sequence choice or anything like that. And, and, and again, we have to get past that, that feeling that our work is who we are. It's, we create it, but it doesn't just because someone says this is bad work doesn't make you a bad photographer, a bad person. That's that person's opinion. But you have to be open to whether or not what they're sharing is valuable enough to you to help you in your editing or your sequencing or, or whatever you're trying to do with your work. Absolutely. And and if a, if a, someone that's looking at your work doesn't like your work, that's OK. That's okay. If you're, if you're committed to that image and you're saying this, I love this picture. I don't really care what Don said about it. Hey, that's okay. I'm not the arbiter of taste for the world. You could show it to a, a, they could show it to to you and you'd go, Oh, I love this picture. Well, now it's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Don didn't like it. Well, Don didn't like it because Don has a different sensibility than you do. Does it make either one of us right or wrong? Just welcome to the world, folks. We have to remember, Richard Avedon didn't get every job he went out for. There were people who said, no, nah, we're going to pass on Avedon. We found somebody else. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. hard to believe, but yeah, true. Well, you've written a book on lighting, and I know you did a creative, light, um, creative live workshop on, on yeah, did lighting. Yeah, a couple, yeah. And one of the interesting things I heard um, you explain is that your approach to lighting is subject specific and subject I think centric yes. centric. And I think that's really important because I think over the last few years, people have learned a lot of lighting technique 
without ever considering the subject. They just think, okay, I'll get this uh, soft box or this beauty dish and I'll put it at this position, at this height, at this angle. And regardless of what my subject is, that's what I learned on in this book or in this magazine article or in this workshop. And that's what I'll do for every subject. For every so, subject. so why do you think that's a huge mistake? And why do you think that the way that you, you teach it is is a more valuable, more effective way of, of using light? Well, one of the things I, I showed on um, Creative Live was we had two bowling balls, uh, a black bowling ball and a white bowling ball. And above that, I put a strip light. And then when you looked at the, the two bowling balls through the camera together, you noticed that the light presented totally different on the two bowling balls. The black bowling ball was very black with a white highlight, a reflection of the source. The white bowling ball presented as white, and you couldn't see the reflection because it was white. All speculars are white, right? So if you have the same light above two different subjects and it renders differently, that tells me that the light remains the same. The subjects are what gives us the difference. Uh, a wet piece of wood reflects light differently than a dry piece of wood. And conversely, skin tones, hair, shapes of faces, all of these things are different. Pulling up a big softbox and setting it there and saying, okay, everybody stand in there, that might work for, for some shots in a row. But then you're going to have a face where it doesn't work. And you have to know what the subject does with the light before you can choose the light to render it the way you see it in your head. And notice how I don't say the right way, because I don't believe there is a right way. There's just your way. How do you see this photograph being completed? Is this a, a photograph of, uh, with a large uh, liquid uh, highlight on that leather jacket? Or do you want to use some specular uh, grid spots? Because that leather jacket's going to look totally different with grid spots than it does with a big giant 4 by 8 softbox. Um, how do you see it? The problem is most photographers don't see it. They don't see it beforehand because the only way to see it beforehand is to understand that lighting proposition that the subject brings back to the camera, presents back to the camera the lighting you've attached to it or that you're using with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been shooting for a while, so you've transition from film to digital and, and all of that. But yes. but now after all this experience that you've had, do you find yourself working a lot simpler? Oh, what a wow, you you must have read my mind. <laughs> um I was at the studio yesterday doing an inventory on the um huge amount of crap I own. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to my um, world. Yes. And it was, uh, I was chatting with another photographer there, and I said, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I used all this stuff for many, many years, and now within the last two years, I'm pretty much, I could grab my 48-inch uh, and my 60-inch octaboxes, um, two lights, and go and make my shots. And I have... I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many modifiers I have. I have everything from 4x8 softboxes, 4x6, strip lights, everything. And I don't shoot that kind of work anymore. I'm not seeking that kind of work these days. 
Uh, now that work will come to me the day after I sell all this stuff. You know that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The next day I'll have to about rent it back from the guy I sold it from or two. But it, yeah, I'm very, very simple. I am um, uh, five lenses, um, four primes and one zoom um, on my digital kit. I have two bodies and you know, I've got some speed lights and those kinds of things. And then I've been spending a lot of time with uh, my film camera. Um, carrying around my F2, um, Nikon F2 with the 35 millimeter F2 Nikkor lens on it. And it's manual focus, which sometimes you have to remember. You put the camera up, you push the thing down and it doesn't focus. You're like, oh, my camera broke. Oh, wait a minute. I have to do that part. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I've simplified a lot, uh, not only in my gear, uh, but in, in the way I use the gear. So, yeah. You've been around, so you've gone through different phases in your career. And not just with what's happened at the, with the economy in various times. But I'm sure there have been moments where you've been really excited about what you do. And then you've been feeling like really despondent about what you do. Yeah. So. Yes. So what, have you, what have you learned about going through that process multiple times? Because it, it seems like it can seem like. It's never going to change either when it's, when it's at its peak. Oh, this is great. It's going to last forever. Or, or you're down in the dumps and you feel like that's going to last forever. So having, having written that, that roller coaster ride several times over your career, what do you feel like you've really taken away from those experiences that have really have helped you to sort of pers- persevere using your word from earlier, uh, as a photographer? Um, I think it's the image. It's you, no matter what, I'm still absolutely enamored with the still image. Um, my friend Gail Mooney is saying, we've got to learn to do some video and I'm going to learn to do some video, but, but, um, and I'll have to do it my way because I can't do it if my heart's not in it. And uh, that may sound, um, may sound strange to some people, but I can't, if my heart's not in it, I mean, uh, if I just want to go out and make money, I'll, you know, I'll go back to school and get a degree in finance or something bizarre. I, I want to make photographs, and so there have been times, uh, early eighties, um, uh, were just, uh, pretty scary for me. We were, we were transitioning from shooting, um, a lot of uh, model composites to fashion. And I was traveling back and forth to a studio in Chicago and I had a studio in New York for a while. And, you know, you, you would invest a lot of money into things and then stuff wouldn't happen. And, uh, got through the end of the year and, you know, made enough money to pay taxes on it. So that was, you know, a good thing. Um, but it was really a struggle. Then the mid eighties, um, all the way up through early nineties, good grief. I was shooting five, six days a week. Um, uh, everything from garage door openers to towels to fashion. Uh, I had six malls as a client. So we would be shooting lamps and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. Those jobs do not exist anymore i mean when i say that i mean they do not exist anymore um the malls are are all uh, supplied images from the vendors um the towels and stuff they're they're shot in-house the work that put me um you know into a house and a car and kids and braces and stuff it's not like i lost it it doesn't exist anymore no one has it so it's been kind of a tumultuous thing, and that's why I went back to design. Um, my thought was, well, I'd have to sell half as many customers 
if I could design the brochure as good or better than a lot of the designers that I was working with, and I could, um, then I get the, the design and the photography. And uh, I embarked on that road and uh, worked out real well. Uh, I've been a uh, graphic designer and a photographer for uh, 15 years, and it's, it's worked out very well. So I say to other photographers, find out what else it is that you really love to do and figure out how to add that to your photography. Commercial photography is changing. Um, some people get mad at me when I, I say that it's changing drastically, um, and that's fine. They can get mad at me. I'm just the messenger. I'm not the cause. Uh, but it is. And what we're going to see coming out the other side five years from now probably will not look much like it looks today. Wedding photographers, boy, they really hate me because I think they're dead men walking. I think wedding, the old, uh, the, the guy standing there in a the corner with his feet hurting, carrying a big DSLR, making photographs for a book or prints, um, will be a thing of the past and within five years. Uh, iPhoneography, um, point and shoots, stuff we haven't even thought of yet, GoPros, stuff like that will take the wedding industry by storm. And when it happens, and I believe it will, when it happens, it'll be a 24-month collapse. And um, that does that mean it'll, that no one will be shooting weddings? No. Not, some, would, some people will. Uh, there's a graph I, sh- I, I like to hook up and show people and say, it's not me. Look at the graph. Marriages um, are declining at such a rate that if they keep declining at the rate they are now, no one gets married in, in 2045. They're gone. There, is no, there are no weddings in 2045. We know that will never happen, but it doesn't show any sign of bottoming out yet. And meanwhile, everybody and their cousins getting a, a rebel and wanting to go out and be a wedding photographer. <laughs> it's it's going to be a tough road to hoe. That sounds like a conversation for another interview. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to ask you my last question, which I ask of every guest, and I ask them to suggest another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone that you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? I think that Scott Tepfer. How do you spell his name? Uh, Scott Tepfer. It's S G. T-O-E-P-F-E-R dot com. Um, I met him a a month or so ago. Um, Fantastic young man. I love his work. I'm I'm like a big fan of his work. He's 30. I'm 64. But, you know, I'd go and carry his gear for him just to watch him work. Really, really love his work. Um, And I think I think you'd I think you'd like his work as well. And you you, and he would make a very good interview subject. He's very, um, uh, very cool guy. I look forward to checking (laughs) out. So where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Well, my work is at DonGianettiPhotography.com. But my flagship is Lighting-Essentials.com, where I do a lot of writing and um, stuff on the on the art and business of photography. And it's called Lighting Essentials. It started out being a lighting uh, blog, and it's ended up being more a photographer's blog, especially those emerging from um, being a photographer into the wild waters of doing it 
commercially. Um, and I'm going to go back to uh, start adding some uh, lighting things. A little health scare recently um, made me realize that I have a lot to teach and um, that I may not be here forever to teach it. <laughs> so I better get working on it. Um, so it's, it, that'll be changing up as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time for me this morning. Hey, thank you very much for having me. As we continue to grow the show and expand our offerings here at The Candid Frame, your support is invaluable. And you can show that support in a variety of different ways. You can make small donations using PayPal. A link for that you'll find at the CandidFrame.com website, where donations of $5, $10, $20, or even more are greatly appreciated and go a long way to helping us improve the show. You can also post reviews on the iTunes web store, which help our rankings and create more awareness about the great program that we offer here. The show's editor is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is The Candid Frame.